and welcome to yet another episode of the Fort Salem Witching Hour podcast. We are a fan-run show, and we are here to recap and analyze all of the exciting action every week on Motherland Fort Salem, airing now on Freeform and Hulu. My name is Jesse, and I'm one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is the ever-effervescent DJ. Good morning, DJ. Good morning, Jesse. Are you ready for the angst train to leave the station? I am all aboard the angst train on this episode. I'll tell you what. So we are going to be breaking down season one, episode seven of the show entitled Mother Mycelium. And that's an interesting title. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. This is a special show for us in, in a bunch of uh, for a bunch of reasons. Number one, it's our seventh show together, which is really exciting. And most importantly, we have finally caught up to the action. So we're, we are recording this on May 2nd, 2020, which means that here on out, all of our shows are going to be posted online the same week that the episode we're discussing airs. You know, I think we actually had a little bit of a crutch when we were doing our earlier episodes because we kind of had a crystal ball into the future. We knew where the episodes were going to go. But for the first time, when you hear our analysis today, we have no idea what's going to happen in episode eight, y'all. Like, could be anything. The show could go anywhere. So thank you for those of you who've stayed with us on this journey. Thank you for those who've listened to episodes one through six, or even if you haven't, if you've just decided to skip to seven, uh, we appreciate your patronage and, and listening to the show. We're going to jump right in. And really, I mean, we got so much to talk about that we, we can't waste a precious second on this intro any longer because I want to talk about all the things that happened in this show, DJ. This first intro too, it was just mind-blowing the way that they started it. Yeah. We open we open strong. We open right where we left off the previous episode, which is Scylla chained to a chair, getting tortured and getting inter interrogated by the army, by Alder and her crew. And Alder is sort of pressing her and she she's sort of saying, like, well, tell us everything you know about the Bellwether wedding attack. And she thinks that Scylla has something to tell her, which is interesting because one of our prevailing theories had been that Alder orchestrated the attack. So it's very unclear to me if Alder is just putting on a brave face here, if she's just faking it, or if she really does think that Scylla is behind the wedding attack. It, it's a little unclear. Definitely. And going into this, this is what I kind of call Scylla conducting an Alder burn session because we know Scylla has no love lost for the military. And this is kind of where we get the no love loss for Alder in general. So it definitely seems that Scylla has grown up on an anti-Alder rhetoric because uh, she says it almost mockingly, the, the one who fought back, the one who changed the world, the heroine. Right. But then she really gets to her actual grievance and it's the party line of the spree, which is that humans hate witches. Like that's what they fundamentally believe, that humans will never trust witches and that witches are basically bound in servitude to fight these petty wars for these mortals who don't even care about them. And then, you know, Scylla sort of kind of goes on this weird little rant about the, the only war that matters, and she calls it the last war. And you can see that she really believes that the real confrontation, the real battle eventually at some point will be between humans and witches. So again, we sort of had on a previous episode said it had been a bit mirrored uh, some of the rhetoric you would hear in other works of art like the X-Men comics with Magneto and, and, and the humans versus mutants sort of platform that he was always sort of espousing in that. So it's a pretty intense scene. Like, you know, Amalia really gives it back. Like you said, like, I can't imagine Lynn Renee is an easy woman to, <laughs> to stare down, but she certainly does in this moment. 
And even when they attempt to sort of mess with her, like they give her this plate of food and like, here, eat, you, you're, we're going to torture you for a while. So you need your strength. And as she starts to chew the food, all of a sudden she looks down in horror and there's blood on her hands and she realizes she's eating glass, which is, I mean, that really made me squirm. I don't like body horror in general. Like, I don't mm-hmm. like when things happen to people's eyes and I don't like when things happen with pieces of glass. Like those oh, are my this two, episode then. Those are my two triggers. So this episode, yeah, I'm not in a good space watching that, that scene there. Um, but at least to their credit, they are not actually making her eat glass. And so you see the glass and then it flickers and then you see it's just an empty plate that still is thrown to the ground and that there is no blood and that she hasn't really eaten glass they've just basically glamoring her or making her think that she had so you know while they're trying to you know break her down and and she's like sort of holding firm here and it's an interesting scene for me because i think you know right away you're like well i'm uncomfortable with torture obviously i'm an ethical person and i i don't believe in torture i think it's 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 indefensible. And so to see these characters, and and while I've always been comfortable with Alder being a bit of a gray hat or potentially even, you know, the ultimate big bad of of the show, we sort of mentioned last episode that it's disappointing to see a character like Anacostia, who I want to be a good person, um, engaging in that sort of thing. And so in this instance, you're like, well, I can't approve of the army and their tactics because I find them morally repugnant. And yet at the same time, it's very clear to me that Scylla is very brainwashed, right? The, the mm-hmm. language she uses, the, the, the gleam in her eyes isn't right either, right? Like it is, I mean, she's pretty much like race war y'all, <laughs> you know? And that's, I think that's a very reductionist worldview. And so I'm not exactly on team Scylla either in this, in this moment. I feel great empathy for Scylla as a human being or as a witch. I don't know if they identify as humans as a witch, but I actually on some level understand why she's in that chair because what she is saying is just as like both. It's basically two wrongs smashing into each other and nobody's right. And so obviously this is going to be the, the marathon, right? Who's going to break first? Will Scylla break down the army or will the army break down Scylla? And so we sort of leave her there in this state of defiance. And then meanwhile, the world is still moving on without her, right? And we, we had hypothesized last episode of Rael had accepted her or not, but it certainly seems like she has because as she's walking around base, having recovered from her Salva overdose, it's clear everybody's gossiping about Rael's breakdown. Like people know on some level, I'm sure someone saw her go to the infirmary and Rael's still in mourning, right? She can't walk by the dormitories without stopping and staring at Scylla's window and she you know this Abigail is being I'll give Abigail credit she's being an amazing friend in this episode she's being Mm -hmm. super supportive and she's like don't worry about it let your grief run wild it's fine and it's okay that you see Scylla everywhere we get it and it's a really nice moment for Abigail and 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 we'll see throughout this episode I feel like Abigail to me has had the most incredible character growth of all the characters so far and to see her like organically being a friend and being the good friend in the trio is like, it's a bit, it's a bit weird for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, I, I would never have guessed that Abigail would be this person. So it's nice to see her truly actually finally blossoming into the leader she wanted to be, even if it's not the person she expected to be. I think what's great is this too. It's, it's showing the diversion between her and her mother right. because Petra maintains such a cold exterior and Abigail is sort of forging her own path a little bit. She's still staying within, within canon of what it looks like on the surface to be a leader. She's protecting her team and everything, but she's also emotionally invested in them. And 
you know, this sort of continues onward because they go into the mess hall. And again, the, the girls are kind of being like sort of vocal mean girls. Like they're being jerks about Rael. Mm-hmm. And we see Abigail really flex on them. And it's a great moment for her. And I like it because she flexes on them using the bellwether name, which we've seen her use before. We've seen her wield it like a weapon as a shield, right? Like that's that's who she is. And there's power in being a bellwether. And she knows it, right? And she's not afraid mm-hmm. to unleash the like, don't fuck with a bellwether sentiment on people but what's interesting is this is the first time we've seen her use it for good and use it in a way that is not selfish because up until this point her flexing has been about her right it's been all Mm -hmm. about abigail and this is the first time she's she uses it to defend somebody else which i think is amazing growth for her she's basically like step off my girl because she's a bellwether now too and so like that name that extent that power that family protection extends beyond just me It, it you know encompasses my girls as well so you know, this whole scene is really strong for Abigail. So she defends Rael, and then she also has a meet cute at the cereal stand <laughs> with a deal because, you know, this show may be super angsty, but, like, they're not going to let us down on the romance front. So she remembers seeing him in the infirmary. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, what's up, girl? I'm from Ter- I'm from Tareen Basin. And, and they have a little, you know, sort of chit-chat. And then she notes, she's like, oh, you still have, you've got a, a woman clearly guarding you right and he's like yes she's allegedly my quote-unquote guide and then you know abigail's like well if you can ditch her i'm happy to take you on a personal tour of the base and by the base i mean my pants so obviously they're kind of laying down the meat cute for a potential romance as we go through the episode one kind of small little point that i liked about this is she first introduces herself as bellwether because she expects that to carry weight everyone supposedly knows exactly who a bellwether is but there's a very specific pause after and she's like abigail even with the boys during belt during beltane she was still abigail bellwether a deal is someone that she can just be abigail with yeah that's a great observation and and her attempts to sort of like use the old tricks on him obviously backfire throughout this episode so we'll see more of their their cute flirtation. Uh, but Adil's got other things on his mind, right? His sister is still sick. Mm-hmm. And we, we, as we go back to the infirmary, we see that Kalita is worse. She's got black veins. Sort of, it, it's spreading. This, this illness is spreading on her. And so the fixtures are trying to treat her, but the disease, it's almost like it's sentient. Like it seems to sense that they're trying to take it off and it instead um, retaliates. It grows more and forces the little girl to vocalize, probably against her will because she doesn't look conscious, uh, and basically defends itself from being healed. Obviously, bad news, like whatever this disease is, it's not going to go away easily. And this is actually an episode I like because I've been curious all along about how fixing works and, and how, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. And so we cut back to the training room and they're getting well, obviously, Anacostia is otherwise indisposed. So their normal instructor has things to do, and by things, we mean torture. And so Isadora, the necro-teacher, is there to demonstrate fixing. I, I do like the irony of a necro-teacher, a teacher who specializes in death, being the one to teach them how to avoid being dead in the first place. The way that I've kind of fallen into it is it's, I honestly kind of see fixing and necro kind of going hand in hand. Because if you think about it, if necros are able to touch the resonance of death, that means that they also have an attunement to life as well because there's still that energy there. I think it also then segues nicely into like why Rael and Scylla are just perfect together Mm -hmm. because they are flip sides of a coin and they are, they are linked through their, their magic, right? Which is why their love is, is so strong and powerful and romantic, which I love. So we kind of learn about like fixing and how it works. And she talks about linking 
and the ability to sort of connect with that other human and see what they're feeling. So you basically tunnel in and, and that's how you fix them. Like being sort of the fundamental skill. And she asks for a volunteer and this dumb, this poor dumb girl. Oh goes my up. God. And this it's, a, I was actually legit shocked because the necro teacher does not hesitate. She slits her throat <laughs> in front of everybody. And you can tell the class is horrified and the poor girl's just kind of like choking on her own blood and like trying to staunch her wound. And at the last minute, we see her reach down and do the linking and then through that heal her. And it's interesting because it actually reminds me a little bit of how, like when she places her hand on her, it reminded me of how Petra did that for Abigail when mm -hmm. they were attacked at the wedding. What I found the most interesting is as far as fixing, we've only really seen Raelle's version, mm -hmm. which she takes onto herself. And whether that's kind of what we hear called the Christo-Pagan method or if it's just because she's a novice and still learning, but Isadora doesn't take the wound onto herself like Rael does. Right. And, and we saw the same thing with Petra, right? Petra did not like wince as yeah. if she had a stab wound. And so there's probably, I, I like that there's not just one way to do a thing clearly magically in this world, which we sort mm -hmm. of learn here because, you know, I mean, I, I, I did have a little laugh because, because Isadora told the girl, she's like, you're allowed to sit out this, like for a minute and then you've got to get back in the exercise and i'm like like she has a lot of blood like shouldn't she get a cookie or something <laughs> like have some a little, apple juice have some apple juice like have a lay down but no like they're gonna proceed onward and so they they kind of pair off to start doing this linking exercise and i think the point is just to connect with your partner i don't think you're gonna they're gonna slit each other's throats but what's interesting is tally immediately runs away and it's like, oh, I'm going to partner with Glory because she doesn't want to be with Rael. And Rael totally like notices, but it doesn't matter because this other girl comes over. I think her name's, her name is Trefine. And so Trefine gets in, in Rael's face about basically sucking. Like she doesn't like her. And then when Rael starts to do her, her chanting, right, which we've seen her do before, she vocalizes. Whereas when we saw Petra heal and we saw the Necro instructor heal, it's silent. Whatever tone they're using mm -hmm. to do the linking and the healing is beyond the audio range. Whereas Rael's is quite different. She does an outlawed vocalizing in a, in a tone that we as humans can hear. And the girl sort of lashes out at her about using this, you know, Judeo-Christian nonsense. And Rael does the chant again, but more forcefully mm -hmm. and directly directs it at the girl and then accidentally knocks the entire class out. And it's a pretty cool, like, it's a well-choreographed shot because the, all of the girls, like, sort of collapse in unison. Uh, and so Rael's like, oops, I perhaps did not mean to do that. And what's interesting to me is the necro instructor is not impacted. And she actually tells her, she goes, well, what you've done is a sleep induction spell. And you clearly did not, that is not a, it's not done to protocol because I'm still awake. And so I kind of like this idea that there's sort of like commoner magic, right? Lay people magic. Mm -hmm. And that the military has guards in place to protect them against the more basic forms of spells. And there's sort of the implication would be that if Rael had used a different method to cast that spell, Isatora herself probably would have been impacted. It's a nice little bit of like world building there. It's not a lot, a lot to necessarily like follow up on, but I, I did like that detail quite a lot. Um, but more interestingly, like now Isadora is interested in Rael and she's like, you are a wild animal. You are completely out of control and that's going to get you killed and it's going to get your unit killed in battle. But then she starts to give her the cell. Right. She starts to say, if mm -hmm. you trust the process, if you trust, trust in us. She says trust in us, which is interesting. Like, because this really is about this battle for Rail's soul. Right. Who who is she gonna go with? Who's she gonna believe? She says, if you if you trust us, you're gonna be unbelievably powerful. You you have a lot of of 
raw gifts in you and, and let us help you. And then what's interesting, I, I do like it because Isadora is like, look, I, I'm going to have to quote unquote reprimand you, but then she gives her a little wink <laughs> because it's very clear that she's impressed and she wants to encourage Raelle. So if she weren't such a clearly a villain, I would be super, I would, I would like this moment more, but you know, she kind of like faux dresses her down in front of the, the class who are not happy to be knocked out. And it was kind of, honestly, it was kind of the worst dressing down I had ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> honest. It's pretty lukewarm. And while people try to, again, get upset with Raelle, like, like Abigail again has her back and mm-hmm. is like, my homegirl can knock you on your ass. So don't come at us because we'll knock you down again. Uh, so team right, team Abigail for sure on this episode. Meanwhile, Witch Father and the boys are back on base. Boys are back in boys town. Boys are back in town. And they are there <laughs> to eat, sleep, and make weapons. And probably sweet, sweet love to our girls. But we'll get to that. They need a little boost, probably. Yeah, they need a little boost. So, you know, it, it's hard work making weapons. They need, they need to get their nookie, too. And the whole point of the scene is really just to establish that witches are being actively persecuted in the world. And that's basically what the Witch Father has two pieces of information that are relevant to us as viewers. It's that... Things are escalating with the civilian population. And that if they don't have a victory against the spree soon, things are going to start. They, they, he's worried that the civilians will start to turn on them. And they kind of make an analogy like these police officers roughed up his kids at the gas station just for standing around. And obviously we live, if you live in the modern world, if you live in America in particular, this theme of police brutality, particularly towards people of color, young black men, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it's a pretty obvious parallel. You know, this idea of social injustice is, is an interesting one. And again, it sort of leads credence to what the Spree have been saying, right? Which is there is no justice for our people. And therefore that's why the institution needs to be torn down. The other interesting thing that he sort of talks to her about is they're afraid that the army is going to be disbanded. And also everyone knows that she's got her hands on the Tareem and it sounds like people are not happy. And Alder has this incredible line where she, she goes, I never needed the Hague's approval for my actions. I simply extend the invitation to accept my rulings, which even if she's a villain, like, I love that. Right. I was like, yes, queen. Because that is who Sarah Alder is. She is a tyrant. <laughs> she is she is the one in charge. And she is not afraid to tell people who she is. So I actually really like that moment for her as a character. This scene too, it put so much doubt in me about the Witch Father's motivations a little bit. So we obviously know that he speaks Mother Tongue as well, which we've only really seen people of power uh, demonstrate that language or people of the older tribes, like Adil. He knows a lot more about the Hague and a lot more about the United States civilian political climate. And he also, of course, knows how to get right under under Alder's skin. So I, I have a lot of seeds planted right now about what exactly Witch Father's motivation is, and I hope we see it in the coming episodes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a character, it's nice to see him again. I'm like, oh good, maybe he'll recur because he's, he's a helpful conduit and, and, mm-hmm. and information bearer to, to us as viewers, as to, you know, the, the larger uh, political machinations of the witch world. Meanwhile, so the boys have like rolled in and they're milling around and Tally, of all people, is giving Glory advice about talking to a boy she likes. And, you know, what I love about the scene is, look, Tally bangs a guy once and all of a sudden she's Dr. Ruth. <laughs> And then Glory sort of, she tries, of course, broaching the Garrett subject. And Tally's like, no, I'll be fine. I'm completely over it. And Glory, of course, looks to the side and like, 
are you sure? And of course, Garrett's approaching in all of his sheepish demeanor that he can. Yeah. And and they have, it's interesting because like now the shoe's on the other foot, which is what Tally kind of needed all along, right? She was the one being moon-eyed and, and chasing him. And now the power dynamic has shifted because she's more confident. She's mm-hmm. gotten what she needed from him. And she's not going to take his crap, which is good because I think that's where the character needs to go. Like she needs to own her power if if we can get behind this pairing. And so she pretty much like pieces out on him. Which So she's obviously learning from Abigail, who kind of does the same thing. So she runs into Clive and Augustine, and they are not, you know, they're all like, oh, let us service you, mistress, <laughs> and, which is cute. I love those boys. They're very, very handsome. And she's not interested in that because she's going to sneak off and, and see a deal, which we'll cut to in a minute. Um, the only other thing that happens in this scene is Byron's back very briefly. Not, not enough Byron time. That's my one complaint about this episode. I would like a little more Byron and Rail BFF time. And the whole point of the scene is actually just to establish that Raelle still has mushroom goo on her finger. And it looks gross. It looks like sort of like a blister or, or something like that, which will be relevant later, as we know. But meanwhile, Adil and Abigail are meeting up in the garden and he's and they, they flirt through the time honored tradition of emojis uh, <laughs> because they sort of she draws a little smiley face in the dirt. And it's very cute. And so she's, she's trying to cheer him up and like, don't worry, like you're in a good place. Like Fort Salem's awesome. We can like rego, we can regrow legs for, you know, for example. So like our fixes are, are, are top notch. And so he, you know, he's, he's like, all right, clearly this girl likes me and, and they're, they're doing their little walk and talk. But of course, Abigail steps in it immediately because, you know, she is who she is. She's a flexor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she tries to do to show dominance and just show, and I think a lot of her self-worth is, you know, in demonstrating a warrior's attitude, right? And she's sort of watching these storms in the, in the distance. She's like, that'll be me someday. I'm going to grind mountains into dust. And she expects him to be impressed. But of course, it completely backfires because he is not impressed at all. And she notices, she's like, oh, why aren't you, why aren't you telling me how hot I am? <laughs> and instead he's like, look, that magic comes at a cost. And when you invoke a weather pattern like other things happen famines occur you know crops are wiped out people get sick diseases flourish and they kind of again i think a lot of this episode is really laying out these different conflicting worldviews in all of the different sort of you know communities in this world so we saw the spree versus the u.s army's perspective and now we sort of see the pacifists you know, sort of the naturalist, like, because in many things about a deal, like, I don't think it's a coincidence that he's engaging in the dirt, he's touching the earth, he's connected to nature, and he's taking a pacifist stance, whereas Abigail is interested in using magic to dominate and control, right? She, and we've seen her, like, she's not above using a mind control spell. She is, she doesn't think anything about altering the natural landscape to serve her purpose. And so they kind of have a little back and forth there where she kind of tries to argue the, Yes, there's collateral damage, but, you know, we do more good than bad. So as long as it's a net positive in the end, that justifies everything we do. And Adil doesn't necessarily buy into that. And we sort of talked about how Anacostia is a, a, does the means justify the end or not? That's to me like sort of the fundamental philosophical disagreement between most of these characters on this show. And so, and again, I think a lot of what Abigail says echoes what we heard her mother say before, you know, when, when she's like, look, Rail's mad at you for killing her mother. And Petra's like, well, it happens, right? A lot of people are mad at me because a lot of people die. And she's very dismissive. And, and that comes across in Abigail here where, you know, it's one thing to say like, oh, there's losses, and, you know, it's unavoidable. But she does it in a way where she doesn't really think about like the human beings behind those losses. 
And so it's not a very impressive moment for her. And as they're sort of squabbling back and forth, you know, it, they get interrupted because a helicopter comes over and then Adil uses his invisibility power and sort of like leaves her hanging. And after that, we segue into uh, another example of does the end justify the means? Mostly just means because Scylla is still a strong ass bitch. Mm-hmm. And it cuts in on her being put through an audible tor- torture. I, In my notes, I've, I see so many allusions to torture that we've heard about and she's getting sensory flooding. The lights have, are still on. I doubt that she's ever getting a moment of darkness at all. She's being assaulted audibly now with this box of loud penetrative sounds like what we saw Petra trying to dissect what the sound was from episode five. Right. The music boxes from hell. <laughs> exactly. The music boxes from hell. And Anacostia is coming in and she, she tries laying it down. All of this will just end if you just tell us exactly what we want to know. And she tries getting in again. And this is honestly one of my favorite parts where Scylla is just like H-E double hockey sticks no and just completely headbutts her. But like you were talking about earlier, she is completely brainwashed. And she's under the illusion that the spree protect their own. Right. She's clinging to that hope, which yeah. to me, like given all of her interactions with the spree seems misplaced <laughs> at best. And it's sad because you're like, Scylla girl, like the spree, they, they, they don't have your best interest at heart. Like I've seen your, I've seen your video conferences. It's, I, I think that is mis, misplaced, you know, and, and for all of her bravado and, and her assertions of those facts, you can tell like she's starting to crack because Anacostia mm-hmm. gives her like her real like stare down, like dog look, like she, she starts to waver, like she's, she's vulnerable. And again, like after enduring torture for this long, it, it's definitely something. And, and to your point, like, I like that. I mean, I don't like watching torture. It's not a fun thing, but it's interesting the ways they managed to make fantastical ideas like these concepts of magic still mm-hmm. feel very rooted in possibility and the real world because as you say if you've studied anything about what happens unfortunately in places like cia black sites or other regimes that use torture that's a very common technique is mm-hmm. you keep the lights on and you bombard them with horrible like i think they like to use death metal in some of these black sites and what it really does is it um, psychologically unbalances you and it put you in this state where you can't rest. And because you can't rest, you actually start to physically break down like the chemicals in your brain. Like you have to sleep in order to regenerate certain chemicals that keep you alive. And so I like in many ways that this torture that they're laying out feels very rooted in something that we we know in the real world. So I, I think that's a great observation from you. And so we, again, we leave Porcella not in a good state and she's starting to crack a little, but she's mostly holding firm. Meanwhile, obviously, you know, Adil and, and Abigail are, are sort of going back and forth in this episode. They have a moment where she apologizes and he talks about how, you know, when the helicopters went over, that's a triggering sound for him because in his people's world, helicopter sound is always followed by death from above, right? It means that, that hostile forces are coming to murder and, and kidnap people that he loves, right? And that he'll hear the screams of the elders and the children and all he can do is, is hide. And of course, we know that in the last episode, that resonates with Abigail because she knows what it feels like to be powerless, to feel like you can't do something to protect those around you. You know, it's a moment that allows them to kind of come back together and kind of smooth things over. And he's like, look, my sister's going to go through her fixing ceremony, but maybe, you know, let's talk later. And so we cut to the ceremony and it does not go well. 
these three fixers are trying to sing a song to make the black goo retreat. But then one of the fixers, I, I don't know what happened here if the fixer just screwed up and hit a bad note or if the disease sensed what was it was doing, what was happening and then just picked her to, to, to single out. But the net result is she wavers, her note hesitates and then everybody's like, oh crap. And they all hit the ground and the virus lashes out at her and basically blinds her and knocks her to the ground. And then it actually starts to spread more over poor little Kalita. Um, so it's a pretty, it's an, it's obviously we're dealing with, with a tough disease. To me, the most interesting thing about this scene was when the explosion started to happen and, and the virus lashed out, the biddies formed a human turtle shell over Alder. The interesting thing about that, that I felt so they are obviously not just youth pools. So she brings them everywhere. She's brought them to battle. We heard about that during the Beltane arc. So they're almost all also like bodyguards. They're these mm-hmm. old women, but apparently they're not old women to fuck with. Kind of through my thoughts. So say, say the biddies are surrounding her. If one or two of them get taken out, is Alder then defenseless? If she doesn't have that ability to go ahead and find another ideal candidate, which we don't even know how a candidate is picked, we know that they have to be young within a certain age range, maybe. But what would happen if the biddies are picked off? Yeah, it's unclear. It's unclear. Obviously, she was slightly weakened when the one biddy collapsed, but it, maybe it was yeah. just one of those. Like, I think there, it's a symbiotic relationship where she maybe felt what the biddy was feeling in that moment. So I'm not sure if she's how weakened she would actually be if you took a biddy out. I think there would be a moment of shock where she absorbed. The, the pain through the symbiotic relationship um, or the parasitic relationship really. Cause like she's, it's not a, it's not a mutually necessarily beneficial Ooh. sort of thing. Um, but you're right. They're both a, a power source and a vulnerability potentially depending on how, you know, how they, they actually function. So we have to, there's a lot of hypothesis around that, that we could probably go down forever if we didn't have to mm-hmm. proceed through this episode. I will say that, you know, again, we talked about Scylla being very clearly brainwashed you know, the duality of the show is everybody's wrong here. Mm-hmm. And, and Alder, in many ways, is wrong in how she approaches things. And we had sort of said, like, look, when she helps the orphans out, she helps the fosterlings, is it because she's a, being a good person or is it because she's using them to her own ends? And when you look at how instinctively the biddies are willing to sacrifice themselves in the moment, right, to jump in front of literal bullets, but also to sacrifice their long-term life and vitality, right? They are giving her, they're, they're forfeiting 50, 60 years of living in order to, to give that to Sarah. And, and in many ways, they themselves are brainwashed because they are acting as if they're part of a cult, just like Scylla. So mm-hmm. again, it's really, it really undercuts Alder's treatment of Scylla and her, her inhumanity towards her as the episode proceeds, because is she any better than the spree is really, I think what she comes across in this episode. And it's why, you know, like, why does she want to help Kalita? It's not because she's being a good person and she wants to steal her songs. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and she'll do anything that it takes to do it. No, she's not the one healing. She sacrifices mm-hmm. the fixer. <laughs> so anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get in more into that, but it does not go well. And really what this is establishing is that it looks helpless for Kalita. And Adil is very upset about that. And then Abigail's wheels start to turn because she obviously likes this boy and, and has sympathy for him. And so she goes and she appeals to Rael. And Rael, of course, at first is very salty with her because she's mad that Tally is avoiding her she, and, she, and won't talk to her. She assumes Abigail is also going to harangue her about whatever. And then Abigail's like, no, 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 no. When I say you're weird, I mean that in a good way for once. 
right? She's, she says like, I, I think you're incredibly powerful and because I respect you and I, and I accept your weirdness, I want, you know, I'm coming to you asking for help. And that kind of is what turns things with her and Rael. And I like that because it's like, look, I, I think Abigail Bellwether is the last human alive who will admit that she needs help. And Rael knows that. Um, and that is really why she sort of gives in and decides to sort of help out. And so when they go into the forest together, you know, she's trying to confront Tally yet again. And Tally, again, is sort of dodging, dodging the question. Uh, and again, Tally, Tally keeps getting lucky breaks here because, you know, they're interrupted by a deal approaching. And I, this is a cool scene because Tally is the only one in the group who knows he's coming. So when Adil uncloaks, he's actually really surprised and he's shocked that she is able to actually detect him and his sister coming through this sort of invisibility sort of cloak. And he tells her that she's an incredibly powerful seer, that she's gifted with sight. And that is something that's really interesting because I feel like Adil, because he's more connected to the earth and, and more in tune with his feelings and with the force or whatever you want to call it with, with magical flow, um, he's very quickly able to see to the heart of each of these characters. And so I think we, we kind of suspected Tally was already going to go down the, the knower path, that she was going to be a powerful seer. Uh, and so we, again, we get more validation of that. And, and we see that Rael is not the only one with special abilities in the group, which is nice. So it puts Tally back a little bit on even ground. At this point, they sort of pivot and then they start to, Rael, Rael, Rael does her thing and she uses her Christian chants. And it's interesting because like, it looks like it's not going well. Like the, this virus spreads all over Kalita but at the last moment, it all fades away and it bleeds into the earth. And Adil is thrilled because Kalita wakes up and seems to be fine. And Rael, you know, Tally and Abigail are really impressed and like, good job. You know, we've done it. <laughs> and they all sort of flance off. And Rael's like, I that wasn't normal. Yeah. She's like, I, I don't know, guys. I don't think that went well because normally I take on the disease and I don't have any disease. And so while they all kind of like are like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, don't look a gift horse in the mouth and, and I'll go away. Obviously, this is not going to end well. And I and look, we've all watched a TV show before. We know what's coming. And if you look, I actually noticed right away in the moment, I'm like, oh, Rail's finger is clean. It doesn't have the mushroom goo on it anymore. I noticed that too. And I wasn't sure if that was purposeful or if they, maybe they just forgot in makeup or something. I mean, if they forgot in makeup, it's a, it's a nice... I mean, it works, right? Because you're like, oh, the mushroom goo is gone. And then we cut and we see that we cut back to Isadora, uh, you know, doing her thing in the necro, in the, in the, the crematorium or wherever they are in their, in their tomb. And she looks up in horror at the mushroom wall as the black tendrils start to spread throughout the wall. So I was like, uh-oh. And it's funny because like when the goo was covering humans, when it was covering Kalita, it almost reminded me, like, it looked like she was almost turning into a rage zombie, kind of like from 28 Days Later. Mm -hmm. Like, she had a lot of those affectations. And so, and... Or a Venom from Spider-Man. Right, Venom from Spider-Man. And yeah. so it definitely had a sentient quality to it. And so mostly my thought was in this moment, like, uh-oh, zombie mushroom wall. That probably isn't going <laughs> to go well. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I want to kind of... When you, when we were talking earlier, and this is kind of where one of my theories literally just came to life. You had mentioned the symbiotic relationship between Alder and the Biddies. Yes. We already know that Alder is tied to the Earth. What happened when one of the Biddies was losing their life force? The Earth started to die, essentially. So what if the mycelium is one of the things that allows her to create that symbiotic relationship with the Biddies? Because if the disease that Kalita carried 
was absorbed down into the earth, which we know Alder is tied to, what if somehow that mycelium is what feeds it? And now it hasn't just infected the mycelium wall, but now what if Alder actually ends up becoming infected? Yeah, actually, I had that same exact thought. Oh. And I, I went, mycelium is a real term. And it is basically a vegetative part of a fungus or mm -hmm. and it's like a fungus bacterial colony, which is interesting. So it's not like one thing. It's actually sort of a, it's almost like a rat king. It's like, it's a mass yeah. of, of bacteria strung together into a giant colony. Web. And the, the episode is called mother mycelium for a reason, right? Like the word mother is not accidental. It is, is perhaps the root, or maybe that's why it's there is, is maybe that's how they grew Fort Salem in general. Like Alder may have some connection to it. And they're actually pretty like mycelia in nature are actually really critical to the ecosystems that they belong to because like you said it is symbiotic they leach material into the soil and then they take materials out of the soil and it's part of keeping the ecosystem uh you know sort of balanced and healthy and ecosystems are generally tend to be quite fragile things and so if you disrupt any part of it it's bad news for the environment so yeah i i 100 expect that this zombie mushroom colony is bad news for everyone, whether it affects Alder directly, whether it starts to alter the fundamental power source that is Fort Salem, because obviously there's something very special about the land itself, um, which again, I think is what Adil is there to really sort of help reflect this idea that the witches and their power and the earth are all one and all connected. And then if you disrupt one, bad things can happen. So we're sort of cascading towards these potential conflicts, right? Like, what does it mean? Like, will, will Alder become a zombie controlled by this infectious disease? Will, you know, rotting of the earth have other implications? Will it fast forward some of our conflicts with the humans? Like, we don't know yet. And because we're, we are now caught up to the show, like, we really, when I say we don't know, we really don't know. <laughs> we, we will not get any more answers on the mushroom wall in this no. episode. But we will get a few things sort of resolved. So... You know, Tally and Garrett have a talk, and by talk I mean they start <laughs> the bone again, which is very cute. So I'm very excited because Ship Cravenwood sails yet again. So <laughs> yo ho ho. So if you're a Cravenwood fan, it's a nice little scene for for you all there. And what I like about it is that Tally's the one who takes charge. Mm -hmm. She's the one who lays down the terms of how they're going to be together. She's the one who actively chooses to you know physically initiate a relationship with Garrett. So they're back together, which is good because I know Kai is going to show up on future episodes and he's, he's a very handsome boy. So I don't mind getting a little bit more time with him. <laughs> and then of course our other romance that's sort of blossoming and healthy at the moment is Abigail and Adil, which I think the internet has already decided that their couple name is Adigail. Mm -hmm. And again, she's still trying to flex all over him and be like, look how beautiful our, our, you know, Fort Salem is. He's like, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a base, honey. Like, get over it. It's a military um, base. Yeah, it's a military it's, base. It's not that special. Right. But you are special and I do like you. And so he gives her a gift and he shows her, he demonstrates for her a song and teaches her the, well, I don't know if he teaches her, but he certainly demonstrates for her the invisibility mm -hmm. spell. And they kiss and it's like, it's like they're sort of wrapped in this glowing ether sort of state, like this pocket within the larger world around them. And Abigail is, of course, very impressed. And, and she's like, oh, it's like I'm everywhere and nowhere. And he's like, you're everything right now. And then kisses her, which is very romantic. But of course, Abigail immediately ruins it, you know, because she can't help herself. Like she is a she warrior to, to be fair to Abigail. And she's like, oh, how useful would this be for the military? <laughs> and that just kills the moment completely. Yep. yep. Kills the magic. And so he's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm not having that. And so that's a sad moment for Abigail. But now, unfortunately, folks, we've come. Oh, we've God. Come to I'm that not ready. Scene. I know. I'm not ready either. 
So let's break it down. You have probably all watched this clip a hundred times on the internet at this point, if you're crazy fans like us. And if you're listening to the show, let's be real. Y'all are, y'all are in the madness with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, Rael is magically sedated and dragged out of bed and tossed unceremonially into Scylla's cell. And it's an interesting gambit because it's risky because Anacostia finally has Rael in a place where she was being able to move on from Scylla. But Anacostia is the one who sort of initiates that gambit and because she knows what's going to happen in the scene, which is as Rael wakes up and, and Scylla is sort of calling her name, they have this crazy reunion where, you know, they, I mean, again, huge credit to the actresses and their, their natural chemistry with each other because they each cycle through like a thousand emotions in the span of about three minutes. And so Scylla is horrified that now Rael is in the cell because she knows, I mean, there's an implicit threat there, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, if you won't talk, like we, we have your girlfriend and here she is. Like we can just take her whenever we and want. The bad thing is, unfortunately, Scylla kind of ended up doing that to herself. Yes. Because back in episode five with the confrontation after that heart stopping kiss where Rael admitted that Scylla was her girlfriend to Anacostia Anacostia and Scylla have this confrontation where Scylla admits to having deep feelings for her. Right. And so she's made herself vulnerable, right? If, if Anacostia believed that Rael was just a means to an end, uh, like everything else in their world, right? It's been very binary, like, you know, mm-hmm. and justify the means. I don't think that she would have done this, ta- this tactic. So you're totally right that Scylla has opened the door to this because, again, she's arrogant and impulsive herself, right? And in the moment she revealed information that Anacostia immediately filed away and is now using against her. And so you can see that Scylla is scared for Rael. And she's also scared because now she knows that the army is willing to go there and probably is going to like one of their tactics obviously is going to be telling Rael who Scylla really is, right? That she's a spree double agent, that she's a murderer. And so you can tell that part of her fear is really this idea that she's going to lose Rael because of who she is, right? because of these. She's more afraid choices. of losing Rael than dying. Yes, she is. And so she's sobbing and she's like, don't tell, don't listen to anything they tell you about me. And so she's kind of beside herself. And then Rael is like confused, right? And she's upset that Scylla's chained and bound, but she's also so relieved that she's alive. So it's this like amazing storm of emotions on her face. And like, they're both sobbing and they kiss. And then, and I love this because again, the actresses don't go half, half no. into this like they really commit and and when when taylor kisses amalia like it's with real passion and real like there's so much communicated in in the way she kissed her which i appreciate it was not like a little peck or or you know an actress trying to hold back like it's this moment of like physical connection that felt really like i was just like so moved and Scylla again tells her that she loves her and she's like i'll, I'll i would never do anything to hurt you you have to believe me and it's very sweet. I also don't know if I believe her because I'm like, girl, you were just about to sell her out to the spree, maybe. <laughs> like, you know, so. So the reason that I, this is the scene, I've, I've always been on psilocide. And it's, I, I have this thing with redemption arcs. I am an evil regal. <laughs> I, I like the bad girls. I can't help it. I admit it. Um, the way that Scylla has had to live her life, it's been on the run. She just has never had any solid ties. The only solid ties she had was her parents, who were killed by the military, which created this whole path of 
that she's on now. And even though Rael started as a task, as a job, she never expected to create an actual connection. So for her, at least in my opinion, Rael is the first real thing that she's had in her life. Yeah. I, look, I, I'm with you. I love a good redemption arc. I am totally on Scylla's side. I love yeah. I love Scylla and Rael together. Like I want I ship I ship it. I want it. I love the redemption arc. It's my favorite one of my favorite tropes, you know. Good girl gone yeah. or bad girl gone good. Um I just I, I guess to me for Scylla, I do believe that from this moment forward she has fallen in love with Rael and that she mm-hmm. will now live that sentiment. That she I so I believe her in that when she says, I will never hurt you moving forward. I believe her. Mm-hmm. I think for Scylla, her, her growth arc, though, if it's going to be an earned redemption, because I, I don't want this just to be like, a, oh, I changed my mind. I don't have to own my mistakes. She still did a really horrible thing. She's You're done right. horrible things, right? She has intentionally murdered random civilians, like a lot of them. She murdered someone who loved her. She 1,601 people. Right. She mur- I mean, Porter loved her. He was a good person, and she killed him to cover up her secret. And, you know, so... And she would have at one point, she was planning to betray Rael and to give her to the spree. And so in this moment when Scylla says that, what's interesting to me is Scylla's not at that point where she's owning that yet. That's really yeah. what I, when I, when I, when I hear that, it's like an amazing moment. Like it's so passionate. I don't want to like take away from the magic of the scene because it's so romantic and, and angsty and, and sincere between the characters. But it does make me sort of realize that Scylla as a character still has a way to go to really be worthy of of being with Rael, right? Because yeah. now she knows she loves her and she does, she wants to protect her. I think part of protecting her is going to be figuring out how she can own her. Atone. Right. And, and because, you know, Rael still carries a lot of guilt about all the things that have happened. And when she, you know, Rael's crying in the scene as well. And she's like, I believe you. And you can see like, there's this little thing that happens on Scylla's face where she's so overjoyed to hear those words and the Rael's sobbing. And she's like, I love you. I love you. And then, Shout out to the person on Twitter. We'll, we'll retweet you and give you credits. I, I don't have your, your at handle here, but sort of noted that if you go back and listen to the scene, because there's sort of a lot of noise happening at this moment, you can hear Rael say, I'm so sorry I didn't tell you before now. And I was like, oh, my heart. <laughs> you know? And Scylla, she's just, she's just trying to, you hear the shh, shh sort of that Amalia is doing. And I'm, I know they were probably given specific lines, but all of that had to have been done so much in the moment that I, the directors that they've been choosing for this have just allowed so many of the characters to organically connect in these moments. They, they are giving them guidelines, I believe, and just allowing them to connect as much as they can. And Amalia and Taylor do such a good job of it. Yeah. And like I said, they're fully committed in their physical beings and, and, and how they're connecting emotionally in the scene. You can see, you know, Scylla's straining. She's trying to hold, like her hands are like up as if she's trying to hold Rael, but of course she can't yeah. because she's restrained and it's heartbreaking, right? And as they come in, they drag Rael out and Rael does not see Anacostia. That's a very important plot point because Anacostia yeah. comes up from behind and knocks her out again with a spell. And then so they drag her out. And Taylor even said, she, she's, I think she said it on Twitter or maybe in an interview that, you know, as they dragged her out, she could hear Amalia's screams mm-hmm. coming from, you know, performing the scene. And that she like sobbed uncontrollably in the hallway outside yeah. because she was so caught up in the emotion of the moment and by Amalia's performance. So I think that really comes across. And it's, it's so sad. You're just like, I'm like, uh, 
my advice to you all is like, go ahead and pause the episode. Go rewatch that scene like five times. Mm-hmm. Drink a glass of wine. Go sob in the shower. And then come back and hit play again and continue on with this podcast. Because you're going to want to do that. Because it really is a scene that I think you can just go over. There's so many little nuances to their performance. And so much is communicated about who those characters are in the moment. What their relationship has been to them. And what it's going to now be in the future. Because you can see that it's you know this exchanging of words. It's almost like a ceremony. right? It, it is... Scylla now knowing that Rael loves her too. It is Scylla making a promise to her that I will always love and protect you. It's Rael reaffirming that I love you and that I will always believe in you, which is really important for their long-term relationship. But what's also quite interesting is when you see what Scylla has endured up until this point, physical torture, mental torture, you know, them sort of coming at every aspect of her being most cruelly of all, this love, which I think this love will ultimately be what redeems her and mm-hmm. will save her soul. But in the moment is what is her undoing. But it is only now that her walls crumble and Anacostia, it's clear that like whatever mental reserve she had, Anacostia wasn't able to break through. And then Anacostia then comes up behind her in this moment and breaks in. And it's a, it's an act of violation, by the way, right? She is, she is intruding and, and entering her mind against her will. And then what we see here is that we get a flashback to Scylla's first day on the job, as it were, for the spree. And we see her picking up the balloon and going forth to engage in the mall attack. And that's just such an interesting point. Yeah, because we had hypothesized that perhaps she had not been the one who did the mall attack because it was unclear. Well, it's also the fact that this is her first actual mission. Like, I'm sure there's there was vetting any organization like the spree i'm sure would be vetting people to make sure that they were the right fit for the organization um the fact that also the there's just there's no hierarchy and that they're just parallel cells scylla is still very young and naive in this fact so a this means that she was already in the military before being approached by the spree or at least this is the way that i'm thinking of it or at least before she was activated. I suspect that they had, I suspect that at some point they had contacted her quite early in the process, maybe before she enlisted. But sure. I think it's the first time we've seen her activate. So like, so however long she was sort of a sleeper, this mm-hmm. is really her first moment of activation, which based on the timeline of the show means she has literally only started really actively being an agent for the spree. Which means they, if she is then a sleeper agent, if she is say, one of the main students that would have been able to gain access to Rael. Rael is the ultimate goal. Scylla is collateral damage. And that's a theme throughout this episode, this idea of collateral damage, because the spree woman tells her, she's like, Scylla's like, I don't know, like what's going on here? And she's like, don't worry about it. You got to break some eggs. Don't care about who you hurt in as, you know, as you're trying to get to this like end state that you're trying to achieve. Like you can't be sentimental about it. And Anacostia herself says that to Scylla when she breaks her. She goes, you know, got to break a few eggs, Scylla, as a way of not apologizing for this violation she's just done. And then it's echoed again in this scene afterwards where Anacostia goes up to Alder and Alder again kind of is like, well, you know, collateral damage, whatever. Like, I don't have sympathy for Scylla at all. And you can tell that Anacostia is, for the first time maybe ever, starting to question because Anacostia is clearly disturbed by what she's learned. 
because it does change our, our understanding of Scylla. It, it lets us know that as horrific as the mall attack was, it was one moment. And that Scylla has otherwise, aside from the Porter thing, which we could see, you know, sort of not, not, not excuse, but at least understand was a moment of panic versus malice, like active mm-hmm. malice. Um, that otherwise Scylla had not been a murderer up until this point, that she's been pushed by these two cults, these conflicting cults who want her loyalty into doing a pretty, like one single horrific thing to become Porter. And so Anacostia's, I think Anacostia had been comfortable up until this point because I think that she thought that the Allspree were brainwashed and irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And so for her, this is the first time in her worldview that she sees that Scylla can change, right? Had a moment of hesitation and that as cold hearted as she's been about, like she's not happy about their relationship, like surely she must see that Scylla does care for Rael and therefore is capable of positive emotions. And Alder probably missteps a little here because she kind of, I don't know if she mocks her, but she definitely tells Anacostia, she's like, you always had a soft spot for orphans and kind of throws that in her face. I don't think it was supposed to be meant as a mocking for, mm-hmm. for Alder. We don't really see genuine emotions. We know that she is determined. We know that she wants to be as powerful as she can, but we haven't really seen things such as devastation or real sadness yet from her. So I think to her, she's a little bit detached from it. Like, yes, she cares for these orphans and she'll, she'll give them blessings, but kind of to your point meant a few times, the orphan taking them in may just also be a means to an end. Right. It's accidental kindness. Kindness is not the point. And that's the thing is that Alder uses these emotions only to the, the, the point that it serves her own ends. And, and you're right. Cause she hasn't shown a lot. We end, we have not seen her show emotion up until this point. It's been very calculated. Mm-hmm. And so in this moment, she kind of reveals a little bit of herself and then we cut and she has this interaction with Kalita, which is really incredible, right? They, they come together in the greenhouse and Alder is patronizing her. And she, again, makes a mistake. Like as much as Alder has been sort of like, trying to stay in front of the game like she's made two miscalculations she's screwed up with anacostia because i think the way she Mm -hmm. approached it with anacostia like is not going to serve her well and then she makes the mistake of thinking that kalita is a child and can be patronized and if you you know look like kalita is like she's like the kid from the sixth sense clearly like something's going on with this girl right like Mm -hmm. if you listen to all to her her use of formal language and like this little actress is really amazing she really projects power and confidence which is really incredible. So like Kalita is like, she's like an old lady in a young person's body. She's like an inverse bitty, right? It's actually kind of, so just as a small break, because I'm an obsessive person. So Kalita is an Arabic name. It means immortal and deathless. Ooh, good, good catch. And I don't, I, I wondered about that. Cause I, the way she talks to Adil, it's like, she's the older sibling. Mm-hmm. And I, I did wonder, like, that's, I bet that is not an accidental Easter egg. That's a great find because I had actually had to hypothesize. I'm like, is she a bit like Alder in that she's more than she seems? She's way older or more mature or, or learned than we actually know. Well, I'm not sure necessarily that it's physically immortal because within obviously certain nomadic tribes, obviously some of them still would use priests or priestesses. And these are, of course, would be the high ranking individuals and they're chosen quite young. Um, so it may even be something of maybe she is sort of the spiritual leader or projected to be the spiritual leader, particularly with her gift of sight. Right, like the Dalai Lamas. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. 
So she is definitely more powerful. And even Alder just completely, we're starting to, I think, see Alder's breakdown. Yes. Because, or at least not a mental breakdown, but more so she's starting to make mistakes. Yeah, I agree. And and so whether she's like, a, I love that idea that maybe she's like a Dalai Lama or maybe, mm-hmm. she, or maybe if you, if you, more like the avatar, like an actual reincarnated spirit, or just they believe that they're reincarnated souls, right? And and that they're the spiritual leaders. And Kalita in this moment, like sort of gets the upper hand because Alder thinks that she has tricked Kalita into sharing her song with her. And this is the first time we see real emotion on Alder's face mm-hmm. because as they start, well, first of all, Alder physically supplicates herself to her. She kneels mm-hmm. out of respect and deference. Well, and Kalita's short, but... Yes, and also the camera needs to frame them. <laughs> but I do like the idea that, like, Alder bows to no one, but she's bowing right. to this little girl, right? She kneels. She takes the knee, and she does it to try to get this song. And as they start to sing, and Sarah attempts to join in, tears run down her face. She has this look of rapture. Like, Lynn Renee, really, in this moment, was so good. It's almost a religious experience for her. And there's all of these emotions that go across her face. And we had, again, hypothesized, like, where is Sarah ultimately from? She's from some old country. I, I suspect, again, she is from where the Tarim are from. And for her, this is a homecoming. She hasn't heard or, or felt these feelings in 400 years, potentially. And so she's so caught up in the moment that she lets her guard down. And then Kalita changes the song from underneath her. And uses it to kind of like, you know, Darth Vader used to force choke out his his minions. Mm Kind of does the same thing, right? Kalita changes the song and chokes out Alder and knocks her down. And then she tells her, our songs will not be safe with you. And denies her and walks out. And it's interesting within the moment, like she kills everything in the greenhouse as part of the spell. Mm -hmm. And so it's this really amazing demonstration of like magical power. And then also mental power and, and fortitude in this little actress. And actually, if you, you see some of the behind the storms, I think Lynn Renee talked about how she actually felt like the actress, the little actress was really intimidating because she carried herself with such confidence, um, which really came through in the scene. And so Alder is scared, upset, and I think furious, which is the second real emotion we've ever seen her. It's like, she's got this look in her eye. Like, I would love to hear Like, DJ, did you feel that? Like, what, how did you interpret Alder's look at the end? I thought she was enraged. Oh, no, she was. And given the sneak peeks that we've had of the desert's, like, setting and reaching back to last episode when uh, Adil is obviously carrying Kalita through a desert setting, she wants, I think, now to decimate them. Yeah, I think Alder's done playing nice. And there, there's definitely going to well, be She was nice? Out. Yeah, well, it was her version of nice. You know, she, she offered them hospitality. She tried to do it the nice way. She asked nice. She did ask nicely. She said, may I please have your song? She did ask nicely. She did ask nicely. I'll give her that. And they retaliated. So there will, there's obviously going to be fallout here. And then this sort of these dividing lines of how will these people mm-hmm. choose? And then again, because we had talked about Abigail being set up to maybe go her go on that third path of Rael, right? Which is to basically be a third resistance movement of some kind between these conflicting forces. This is another mm-hmm. thing that can help mo- motivate a character like Abigail, who has now formed an emotional bond with these people, with this, this brother in particular and his sister to an extent. So it's yet another thing that can push Abigail outside of the fold. And so we sort of wrap the episode on a cliffhanger of sorts. So, you know, Rael wakes up and she's super excited that Syl is alive and, and wants to do something about it. But there's no time for that because Anacostia comes in mm-hmm. and it's time for their final graduation mission. 
they're going to aerial drop into a war zone and go through some kind of war game. And so we kind of end with the girls getting on the helicopter. And the one thing I, I did like about this scene is prior to their drop, like the, it ends on an incredible visual, which is our three heroines, you know, jumping out of the helicopter and diving through the, the storm clouds in formation, you know, in their full military tactical gear. And that's where we sort of end. But I, what I really liked about the scene was, you know, we talked about Abigail's growth. We talked about all the girls coming mm-hmm. together as a real unit. And they're on, of course, they're on the, the same helicopter as her <laughs> mortal enemy, Libba Swythe. And Libba is also her unit leader. Because, like, look, I, I believe that Libba is a competent person. I think she's probably also a powerful witch. And so she's giving mm-hmm. her unit the rah-rah speech, you know, about, like, keep your head on a swivel troops. We're going to get there. Like, you know, be stay frosty. Storm right? and like, fury. Yeah, storm and fury. Stay frosty. Like, all of the, the sort of tropes you normally hear in, in these military movies and, and things like that. And to me, what was really interesting is up until this point, that's who Abigail would have been in this moment too, mm-hmm. right? She would have given the same exact bullshit, like, you know, rote speech that Libba gives to her troops. But instead, because Abigail has grown, she has gone through these traumas because she, she really does look at them as sisters. She doesn't do that. She's like, well, nice speech, Libba. And all she does is she takes Rael's hand and she's like, it's going to be okay. And then that's the last thing they say to each other before they all jump on. I mean, she, you know, she's like, well, let's stay together. Like, you know, let's stay together when we jump out of the, out of the helicopter. But I love that moment to me. Like, that really moved me because I was like, oh, I'm so proud of Abigail. Like, she's moved so far as a character and she's finally becoming the leader that she's probably meant to be. And I love the idea that if you showed episode one, Abigail, like if you, you could like go back in time and be like, I want to show you a scene of what you're going to be doing in episode seven. I think episode one, Abigail would be horrified because she had this idea of the kind of, of what leadership looked like. And instead what we see her learning is how to be a true leader. So I, I really loved that moment. And I'm really excited to see what happens as they go into this combat drop. This combat drop is going to be insane. I mean, we've seen a couple, there's there, they've choked back a little bit on the sneak peeks. We usually have four sneak peeks. We only have two. and it's going to be a very unit focused episode is the most that I can say. And kind of you talking about mirroring before. So Libba's speech actually harkens back to the scene in episode one where Anacostia is talking about the spree and that she references the end in that episode and Scylla references it in this one, but that's a completely different other branch of theories. But when Tally is just, horrified at the spree and their tactics. How are we supposed to fight them if we don't even know who is one of them? And Abigail tries to take on that leadership role that she's trying to step into. And she does, she falls back on what she is used to. And she says, like Alder says, with storm and fury. She recognizes now that storm and fury isn't exactly the best way to lead. Right. And she's going to take a different way. And that's what I think this, this, whole show has been leading to for these three characters in particular, right? Which is like, is there another way to live your life? Like what does true choice look like? You know, when you, when you break free of these expectations or if you challenge, you challenge what you believed was always like, you know, what you thought were fundamental truths or not. And, and so mm-hmm. who do these characters actually want to be? So yeah, I love all of those things. I'm so curious to see where this episode goes long-term the themes that are now being laid out before us, like, is there truly a last war, right? Like, is the next conflict going to be internal to the military with Petra versus Alder? At what point will these other superpowers in the world start to make their move? What's the truth behind the spree? 
I don't know what's going on there. Like, are they really a unified unit? Are there different branches of Spree that we'll have to deal with over time? I actually have all kinds of crazy theories in my head that like maybe Alder's sister is the one who founded the Spree. That's one of my working theories right now. So they could certainly go down that route. Are you, are you of the firm theory? Cause I had posted this a little bit ago in the opening credits where it opens on Alder's line. There's a couple different views that people are taking. It branches, her photo branches both ways and down. Some people are taking that as, well, she's the birth of the military lines, essentially, because Abigail, for instance, is a sixth generation bellwether. I take it as there are two sisters, and that would fall fairly well into the actual Salem witch trials, where there was a Sarah that lived, but two of her sisters died and were hung as witches. That's interesting. Yeah, I I could see that. I mean, on one hand, I just assumed it was an org chart and that was her at Uh the top of the army. And then it it did show show lines of people who served. Because I think they're more sisters than you you would think. That's a fair point. But I do do like the idea that like going back to the Salem witch trial, that like there are sisters or there's other people. Mm -hmm. And and, and sort of like, what choices did they make? Did Alder make one choice and she disagreed with her sisters? Like how far back does the schism go? Like why does she leave her homeland in the first place? Like why go to America? America was like terrible back then. It was like the scary wilderness. So why be in a Puritan settlement? Exactly, right? Like, yeah, why join this Puritan settlement? Like how does Sarah Alder end up there in the first place? And she sentenced her people. So there are other, you know, she took some subset of witches um, Mm -hmm. out into the world. And, you know, a lot of this sort of, when you hear Adil and, and Kalita talk to her, there's this sense of disapproval and it's that, you know, Sarah somehow transgressed and, and broke from tradition and mm-hmm. we don't know why. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how that plays out. I am curious to see at what point humans will start to assert themselves more because again, you know, most of these girls, Rael comes from civilian population, but the other girls have no connection to, to mere mortal humans. And so you know, is the race war thing fair? How do they get treated? It's a little unclear to me because like witches look pretty normal to me. So I'm not even sure how they knew. I mean, maybe because the boys were all in khaki pants and on a bus together that they happened to know they were witches, but military uniform, basically. Yeah. But if witches chose to like, you know, they said the spree just live amongst the civilians. There's no really way to know. And it's unclear if civilians are plugged into the the birthmark thing and that all the birthmarks are easy to detect. But it'll be interesting to see sort of how that conflict escalates. Like, are the spree correct? Is there one final battle? And what's their opinion on that? Like, are the, you know, a lot of, you know, I keep coming back to sort of of the X-Men line, but one of the things that Magneto would talk about is that not only were mutants and humans like incompatible, but he believed that mutants were superior Mm -hmm. and should rule in dominion over the dumb cattle that were humans. And that's definitely something we've seen in any kind of movie involving meta humans, this idea that, the superior race will dominate. So do the spree, do the spree just want liberation or do they have a more sinister worldview, right? Is there some subset of the spree that believe that witches should rule over humans and then humans should serve them? Like it's a little unclear, like what, what all of these competing like political worldviews are. And then we know that in the U S they're quite uncomfortable with service, but what do the Russian witches think? What do the Chinese witches think? You know, they come from different cultures. Like, in, and if you study political science, mm-hmm. like, you know, that some cultures tend to be more communal. Some need to be, are more individualistic, like, like Americans. So, you know, is this a worldview that all witches hold, right? Like, do witches in other countries 
chafe under service as the U.S. witches do. It's unclear. So there's so many places this show could go that, like, I'm just, like, I'm dying to know. Like, I want Elliot. I, if I could see Elliot Lawrence right now, I'd be like, I need you to show all seven to eight seasons. Like, I need the storyboards now because I just have to know. <laughs> I could see this taking on almost like a Walking Dead infamy with so many different branches. But Walking Dead, to me, has kind of fallen dead. Yeah. But... Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a tightrope walk there. I, I do believe, yeah. though, like when you hear Elliot say, I could do seven or eight seasons, I 100% believe, I believe he has enough material to make that a really compelling experience because mm-hmm. we have so many questions. And, you know, look, we, we've already gone over an hour in this episode, probably. I, we'll see what happens when I'm done editing. But I would love to hear what you all are thinking out there in the fandoms. So what we're going to do is we're going to run a series of polls. We'll try to have some conversations with you all. And we want to hear what you want to hear about on this show. You can find us on Twitter at FS Witching Hour. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time uh, for episode eight of the Fort Salem Witching Hour podcast. Have a terrific witching day.